Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number nine. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, and consider Christianity as love and truth. This week, we're discussing chapter four of Not a Fan by Kyle Adelman, titled One of Many or You're One and Only. We hope you'll come along for the conversation. You can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash nine. You'll also find notes and links for this episode at the same place. We're here to discuss another chapter of Not a Fan. Today we're on chapter four titled, One of Many or Your One and Only. Just at a high level, I would say this was just a continuation of some of the previous chapters to date, which have focused on, are you committed enough? Are you truly following Jesus? Uh, Even if you think you are, maybe you're not. And has kind of an interesting conclusion to the chapter, but I'll save that for later. So what were your thoughts on this chapter, Greg? You know, I... uh... I got a little bit excited about this chapter because there's a word that I've been looking for throughout this entire book. Well, oh, we use the word love. Page fifty-eight, <laughs> page fifty-nine. I'm seeing page sixty-three. I'm seeing, yeah, close enough on page sixty-five. So he 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 kind of uh, he he went someplace that I've been waiting for him to go for a while. Now he did it in a really strange. What I think is a really strange context, and and I, I I'd like to throw this back to you almost right away because I'm wondering what you thought of his use of Luke 14, and what did you like? How do you, what do you make of that to begin with? And like that's that whole piece. He's really kind of focusing not so much on the whole chapter as he doesn't focus on whole chapters, but he's talking about verses 25 and. Uh, Mostly 26, and 26 out of the NRSV, Luke 14, 26 reads, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and child, brother, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. So, I, well, I did a couple things. I read it in a couple different versions. I read it in the NIV, I read it in the message. I looked in a commentary a few weeks ago. I think I like I think there's a good idea. I think I guess I I mostly agree with his presentation, although I also feel like there's kind of an element of drama and trying to drive home a point by you know, there's kind of different uses of the word hate. I think he's glommed onto that word and kind of pushed it as far as he can. Yeah. Um I I do think there is this notion in the passage and the people that Jesus is talking to of, um, I have to be it. You you can't have these other things that are more important than me. I mean, I, I don't know how else to take anything else from the passage, so I think that's there. What I think is funny, though, about the whole love thing is, yeah, on page 64, he goes on and on, he's been going on and on about how you have to forsake everything else except Jesus— and then he says, but understand this, when Jesus explains that he will not share your affection or devotion, he isn't just saying he wants to be he wants to be loved by you, he's making it clear how much he loves you. 
And I was like, what? <laughs> How on earth did you get there? Like, like you're a whole... So up until page 64, it's been all about, are you committed enough? Are you... Yeah. Is your... Is your... A belief, a relationship in Jesus, like really, really real, and um, so I was like, wait a minute, so like you only use, you only play the love card, like when you really want to cap something off, like I was like, what? How did, how did you get there? Like, and that's what's generally missing from this book. I've, I confess, I have finished it. I got to the end, and in the last chapter, he plays some of these same cards of like, um, how much. Jesus really loves us. Mm. But for me, there's like so much missing in between it. It's just like, yeah, I have a hard time getting there. So, so that, that's my take on Luke 14. What was yours? Well, Luke, I mean, the thing is Luke 14, it's, 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 it's paired up with Matthew 10, 37 and 38. So, and Matthew gives a little more information here, but Matthew ten thirty seven says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And it finishes off with, Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Again, that's NRSV. And the, the, the other thing, the other helpful thing that Matthew does is it, it, it prefixes uh, verse 30, Seven uh, through thirty-nine, which I just read you, um, with verse thirty-five and thirty-six, and they're quotes from Micah, from the Old Testament, and it's the quotation, or it's kind of a. There are two versions really of the Old Testament. One is the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text, and the other is the Greek translation, which came out of it, called the Septuagint. Um, and this, I believe, is coming from the Septuagint. And they're, they're, they're mildly different. But anyways, um, if you look at Micah 7, verse 6, you're going to see some of this stuff. And the, the, uh, the paraphrase of Micah 7, 6, that just precedes what I read, and verse 35 of Matthew 10 is, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. And... The, when you put all this stuff together, the, this is this is kind of what, what what strikes me. Like we've got to put this stuff in context. If you've got something in Luke or one of the like the synoptic gospels are just they, they they've got a big flag on them that says, "Hey, compare me, compare me with my friends." You know, my Mark and Matthew or whatever. I think Luke is a lot stronger, and I think Luke's trying to do different things. I mean, that's that's part. But do of they? The point. But I guess. But I guess ultimately, what we're trying to figure out is: do they get to the same point? Does. Yeah, but I think Luke makes it a lot harder to like. Luke is a lot easier to take in, in, in its extreme sense because it is much more extreme. But but you can't say, uh, oh gee, I've got Matthew here and Luke here. I'll just choose one of them. No, you have to take them both <laughs> and look at what they're going to and look at where they're coming from. You know, if they've got origins in the Old Testament, well, what, what might those origins be? And what clues do those give us to how to read these uh, little sections better? And so, so what do you get when you bring them all together? Well, when I bring it together, first of all, um, Micah, he, Micah 7, uh, it begins just before this, this comment about um, sons and daughters rising up against their parents. The whole thing is about um, 
it's very clear, Micah 7, verse 2, the faithful have disappeared from the land and there is no one left who is upright. And verse 7 goes through, chapter 7, pardon me, and Micah goes through and talks about this lack of faithfulness. And uh, what, what, what I what I take out of this, first of all, number one, is that, that our orientation towards God is very important. And that it is not about, you know, it's, it's interesting because in Micah, they're even talking about family relationships breaking down. And where family relationships break down, there's a big problem. Right? You're supposed to honor your father and mother, blah, 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 blah. Right? So all of this stuff in, you know, the, the two verses in Luke and these two in Matthew are still within the context, that greater context, of holding with true family relationships and right family relationships. One of the the interesting things, um, the interesting ways of looking at, um, well, uh, we'll say the Gospels, because this is about the Gospels, is what we call a social scientific way. What that means basically is, what was going on in the culture at the time, so that we can understand some of this stuff. So I've got this uh, social science commentary on the Synoptic Gospels by Bruce Molina and Richard Rohrbaugh, and one of the things they talk about is this idea of the surrogate family. And uh, basically what they're saying is that there, there were only two types of religion that existed in the first century, political religion and, and domestic religion. So the one was, um, you know, you'd be aligned with a certain political group, and this would be how they, this is their religious views, and you go with it. So this whole idea of, like, mix and match and independence that we have now is just was not possible. And... The other, the other one, which is more important uh, is, for us, is the kind of domestic religion. And, and as this guy says, in antiquity, so the per- period when the Gospels were written, the extended family meant everything. And what they're suggesting is that Jesus, when he's speaking here, is breaking down what it is to be part of a family. And, and the, the huge, huge thing that you see when you look in Luke, like earlier on, so Luke is very strong on this, right? This is a very strong statement. If you don't hate me, hate other people, you can't, you know, loving me. But if you look back, um, this is all contextualized. In Luke 8, when Jesus is talking, he's lecturing, and um, Luke 8, 19 and through to 21, and he's, it reads, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and brothers are standing outside, waiting, wanting to see you. But he said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And what these authors are suggesting is this is a huge theme in Luke. The idea that the boundaries become rewritten. And that the boundaries, the true boundaries in terms of family, are based on belief. It doesn't mean that there's not some sort of a relationship there, and that, that, that there's not obligations and all these other things. But this is not a call. See, I think what, what he's doing, what Kyle's doing, is he's taking this out of its original context, and he's putting it into a 20th century context. And you read off of page 64 in the book. And if you go a little further to the top of page 65, I'm sure you saw this. Um, he writes, Jesus makes it clear. If you follow him, he is to be your one and only. You're so committed to him that by comparison, you hate everybody else. Now, Dong. now yeah, gong. I, I wrote a much stronger word than gong. Go. That's just too... Uh, yeah. It would be interesting to push him on this. Does he really believe that? I mean, I guess he would have his own definition of hate. Well, yeah, he's changing words around, I guess, to, you know, do you, do you hate your... You know, that, that's, that's ridiculous. And, and what does that mean, that you, everything is so 
I don't know. I just picture somebody who's so quote unquote in love with Jesus that it's like they're on, they're on mind altering drugs. Like how can you love someone to the extent so much to the such that to the, to that extent by comparison, you hate everyone else that doesn't work. And that's not what you see in the gospels. And you do see, I mean, you've got, you've got, (laughs) well, that's interesting. No, that's interesting. I mean, typically when you're really in love with, with, with a person or you're kind of in love with every, like it's, it's, it's not like you're in love with someone and you're like, Oh, I'm shunning everyone else. I don't want to be around them. I, I, it's that your, your heart is open towards one. It often open towards others. Yeah. Love begets love. I mean, he's, he's working from principles that, that, that don't work. And I think he's ignoring some of the fundamental literary concepts, um, it's certainly in the Synoptic Gospels, like if you look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and he's, he's, he says things like, uh, um, this is Matthew 5.22, But I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother and sister, you'll be liable to counsel. And if you say, you fool, this is NRSV again, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Now, but the problem is, is that Jesus, later in the Gospel, uses the word fool. Paul in Galatians talks about the, uh, in Corinthians, he talks about the foolish Galatians, pardon me, foolish Corinthians, and in, in Galatians, he makes he makes the same sort of comment. So we have to be aware that there is exaggeration in the text, like hyperbole is the kind of formal name for it, but uh, he's, he's not saying if you tell somebody that they're, they're a fool, that you're going to hell. Because later on, he does it himself, and then Paul does it. And we're certainly not seeing these two in hell, I wouldn't think, no matter... That, that's putting aside the notion of what hell is, exactly. But nevertheless, you know, I just... Yeah, I think he's got it wrong, and I think it's worrying to me uh, that he could make such a statement, like, you're so committed to Jesus that by comparison you hate everyone else. Um, that's not what love's like, as you said. And how does somebody who's writing a book about being in relationship with God, with a God who is love. So, I mean, this has got to be, if, it, if love's not the top, it's, 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 it's right at the top, sharing it with something else. And I would say it's love and truth, but um, that's my view. But I'm worried when I hear somebody making these statements and I think, how can you misunderstand this, this thing? If it's so crucial, what does that mean for the rest of what you're telling me? Yeah, and I guess as you're talking, I wonder, I just keep wondering... It... Is is this book just written to a very specific, very narrow audience, and it's not for me, you, or us? Or I, I mean, so because I'm backing up a few pages so on page sixty one, um, you know, he asks those classic hard kidding questions. Well, on page sixty, it's like, for what do you sacrifice your money? So the the takeaway there is: is money impo- more important than Jesus, and do you trust money more than Jesus? Um, in your mm-hmm. life. And then the second one is, when you hurt, where do you go for comfort? Well, obviously, there's only one right answer there, and that's to Jesus. Um, <laughs> and if you read, it, you know, at the end of that section on page 62, it says, when you experience the pain, where did you turn? The answer to that question reviews your, reveals your heart's true devotion, to which yeah. I just say, well, words I don't want to say on this recording. It's not that simple. Like... <laughs> Um, where do I go when I hurt? Honestly, um, mm-hmm. for a good portion of my life, I have not turned to God. Because when mm-hmm. I did, 
And when I followed the teaching that I was given, I, I came up empty. That's right. <laughs> I was hurting, and I said, God, help me. Where are you? And as far as I was concerned, God didn't show up. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure other people would look at my experience and say, well, uh, that's because you were doing something wrong or you were sinning or something. But mm-hmm. um, to just say, you know, it's the the answer to this question reveals my heart's true devotion. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like Jesus to be my true devotion, but right now it's not, and I don't know how to get there. So this well, book isn't really helping me get there. <laughs> now, now, can I push you a little bit, though? Push me. Why? You said you'd like Jesus to be your heart's true devotion. But, but why would you like that? Because it's... I feel like for my entire life, that's how Jesus has been sold. That I I meet people and I know people that um, Jesus is their everything, and um, it brings them peace, it brings them joy, it brings them ultimate satisfaction, and they can't imagine living without with anything else. Like it's like the ultimate experience for them. And so, uh, I don't know, maybe that's something that I just kind of need to let be theirs, and I still need to kind of find what's mine. I don't know. Okay, so you're saying that if Jesus is your true devotion, that it's much broader than Jesus is the person I go to when I'm sad. It's it's this sense of... Oh, it would be a holistic... Fulfillment. Yeah, I would see it as a holistic... Yeah. A holistic relationship, and I don't... I feel like I have glimpses of like, wow, there was some mm-hmm. divine intervention in that experience. I don't know that I heard or felt or saw Jesus, but um, mm. I have a couple of situations in my life, like near-death experiences, where if things had gone slightly a different way, I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. I yeah. firmly believe that there was divine intervention there and that I'm here for a reason. I would still like to know what that reason is. And maybe that's all part of the journey, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Well. So so, and I guess kind of carrying on this theme. So the rest. So his other questions are, you know, what disappoints you or frustrates you most? Mm. Um, I'm not really sure what to take away from that question. But then this other one, you know, what is it that gets you excited? And he talks about watching a football game and how he was more excited about the football game than God. Um, I something doesn't add up about that for me (laughs) yeah and then i guess to just kind of go to the end of the of the chapter you know he he likes to ask these kind of rhetorical questions i feel like they are you know so the the punchline of the chapter is if following jesus cost you everything would it still be worth it and i wrote no not so not today like and so far Mm -hmm. this book has not made any compelling case that it is Mm -hmm. like to me, that's another funny part about this book. It's like, it's it's all about, you know, are you really committed? How committed are you? Are you committed enough? Are you fooling yourself? Are you trusting in the right things? And, but it's like, why? why? Yeah, why <laughs> no, The why question has not been answered whatsoever. No. Now, no. maybe that's assumed, and maybe if you're one of the 50,000 people that goes to his church, it's really clear, but... In that. terms of this book, is a tool to draw me closer, or or no, it's I, just I not. This that. isn't. It's not happening for me. 
No. You, you know, and it's interesting. Even if you look, I, I haven't read all of these, but he finishes up the, each chapter with uh, a personal uh, account of somebody who has moved from a fan to a follower. At the end of chapter 4, on page 67, uh, there's a woman who gives her account. And towards the bottom of the page, she she makes this, this statement. Um, Through coming to church every weekend, I found myself praying more and more. I started praying about whether or not I would give my all to God. And, and I wrote, is that the right order? Wouldn't you want more info? All of this emphasis on cost and nothing on benefit, nothing on who God is, nothing on why. And I, honestly, I, I, you see, part of the problem that I have with this, really simply, is that the thing I want to tell people, the thing that gets me excited, is the why. The why is crucial. The why it matters is you know, you know, and when we're reading some of these stories, like the story with the the, the woman who interrupts uh, Jesus and uh, Simon the the, the the Pharisee, I believe, during their dinner party, um, you know, there's something that happens with that woman, and we're 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 not looking at the fact that she was there. We're 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 asking ourselves why was she why would she do that? What happened? And he went very deeply at that point into the why, and he began. You know, he, he exercised some imaginative license as to what was going on for her. And clearly, I think he's right in the sense that he said she knew the more the social boundaries, and she knew she was transgressing them, and she did it anyways. And there has to be a strong reason to do that, because social boundaries, I think, were much stronger at that point. And some of them were just, you know, you just don't break them. Um, that's how society functioned in the first century. There's much more latitude now. And yet he doesn't do that for himself. He doesn't, none of his, the stories that he's got, they're these, these not a fan stories. Um, and for me in my life, the why has meant everything. So in other words, because I was a Christian and I left Christianity, I turned my back on it completely as a lie. The only way I'm coming back and I, you know, the other, the other part of that, and I think what's, what happens for a lot of people is we don't just turn our backs. Those who walk away from Christianity don't do so as a way of saying this is a lie. But it's, there's a, there's a, there's a, you're not just leaving Christianity and spinning around in a circle. You're going someplace else. You're saying this is not true and this over here is more true. And the only way for me to come back was to say, I have found something in Christianity which is more true than the true things I found outside of it. And part of that was was deeply personal, deeply relational, deeply experiential, but it had points that I can, you know, present to other people and talk about. But I'm not talking about it as an obligation. I'm talking about it as as a it's like that cathartic release when you say I love you to somebody that you love. You're not telling them new information. You're not telling them something that they didn't already know. And you're not telling yourself so that you, you get it. You know, you're not sort of speaking to yourself and speaking to them. You're taking that deep emotion and you're putting it out in a way. You know, sometimes we say it in a trivial sense as a parting or a greeting. Love you. But um, at other times, it's, it's a very, it's a way of putting into words something we can never capture into words and we keep doing it again and again and again, even though we can't capture it because it's so poignant and meaningful for us. And the poignancy and meaning of someone's faith 
a lot of it has to come down to that why. If it doesn't come down to the why, what does it come down to? And why are you just making these assumptions? Like, if you're joyful, why don't you get up and dance or sing or shout or write or do something? Because the emotions that he's talking about and that Christianity says, this is what is going on for people. And these stories about, like, this woman who comes and breaks all these social boundaries. There's something going on for this person. They're powerful, powerful situations that say, I don't care what the boundary is here. I'm transgressing it. And for me, a huge, huge part of that is, you know, I've fallen in love. I have, I have encountered someone who's changed my life. And, and I don't care what the boundary is right now. I'm crossing that boundary because that person, that entity is there and I'm going there. Because I want to be there. I want to be involved with what's going on in that entity's whatever their endeavors are. You know, I'm trying to avoid using personal pronouns because I don't like that. I'm okay with that for Jesus, but God is not a he. God is not a she. God is more than all those things. You know, includes them and exceeds them. But this, I find, I've got to say, I, I'm awfully suspicious. You know, I don't understand how something that is that is so powerfully life-changing, how, why the story goes to, you know, praying about whether or not you'd give your all to God. On what basis? Why? Yeah, and, and that's what. Yeah, that's where I just. I don't know. We keep coming up against this, and that's why I just wonder if it's assumed. I guess my point though is I don't think it can be, John. Honestly, no, no, like, no. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, maybe well, I'm, and I think I think the assumption all comes back to our favorite page twenty-one, which is where do you want to spend eternity? I think. Yeah. I think maybe that's where. Yeah, that's a good as, point. As. As you were talking, I was kind of flipping pages. I was on page 60, and he talks about, you know, it's this is the question of what do you sacrifice your money for? And then um, mm. if you had just enough money, you could order it off. He talks about sacrifices and stuff. And then he says, but Jesus wants to be our satisfaction. Do you mm. agree with that? And if you do, what does that mean? I was just reading, going back, looking for something in a in a, in a fairly famous book uh, written by Augustine, or St. Augustine, called His Confessions. And he has this wonderful line. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Augustine, and I'm a big... Uh, Except when you're not? Detractor, yeah. <laughs> but the, the nice thing is he's written so much stuff that you actually can be. He's, he's enormously prolific. He has this one line at the end of one of his chapters. It says, The, um, the Sacy... The satiation of your love is insatiable. And that I fully agree with. That I completely agree with. And that, for me, uh, tells me an awful lot about Augustine's personal, you know, sort of relationship and encounters with God. And, and that, I think, is... Uh, what I take him to mean by saying that is... Um, and, and through the whole of the confession, what he's, where he's going at is, is this sense of, of, of non-fulfillment and, and as you mentioned earlier, the idea that, you know, you're here for a purpose. And so non-fulfillment, both in terms of not being happy or not feeling like life is going the way it should be, but also in terms of some kind of goal or reason for you 
what you're doing and, and engaging in something that you feel is deeply resonant with who you are as a person, that there's meaning in who you are and you're kind of really being in that meaning. You're not just doing something meaningful, but you're being in the core of that meaning for who you are. And what I get Augustine to say is everything else I do does not get me to that place. But being in a relationship with God, in the sense of being beloved of God and allowing myself to embrace that and be embraced by God, that's it. And I would totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. But I don't see Kyle going there at all. I think you're right. I think page 21 is is the, the rudder and it might be the engine too, that it's about reward and punishment. And if we keep going in that direction, we don't need to ask any more questions. You know, we talk about love. And this is the thing that I found this very difficult when I was writing my, my master's thesis. And I'm, I'm looking at some of these big, big authors on the Christian horizon, some, some, theologians, uh, you know, and I some people that I, I, I do respect their work and they're very thoughtful, but the presence of love in their work, the notion that, you know, the relationship to God was basically down to gratitude. Gratitude is not, you know, I'm grateful for a gift, but I guess this is also maybe the idea that, you know, as you said in some of the earlier podcasts, that people love God because God's died for them. Well, well, maybe, May, I mean, that's part, I'm, I suppose I'm, 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 I'm grateful for some of that, but, but if there's a relationship there, I'm not, I'm not, there is no, re, it's redundant or it's a, um, category mistake to say that I have a relationship with God dying for me. I have a relationship with an entity, not with an act. Ooh. And, and it seems to me that everyone that I see when I'm hearing these things is they're trying to relate to an act. You cannot relate to an act. You cannot be in relationship with an act. You can respond to it. You can assess it. But you can't relate to it in the way that you relate with a person. So what's the relationship with God? It's not, it's not based on gratitude. It's, it's based on love. No, but you were saying response, and the response is that you're supposed to be grateful and you're supposed to uh, give your life and give your all because um, how could you not? Jesus paid the ultimate price by dying him. He gave his life. So, I mean, there's nothing you could do that would be good enough for that. So you might as well just basically do as much as you can. That's that's what I hear, people. That's kind of the, the undercurrent I feel in this area. Yeah, but they're claiming relationship at the same time, and they're telling people about their relationship. I don't think they're telling people about their reaction. You know, or if they are, they don't want it, they don't want it to be perceived that way. You know, so you have a reaction to Jesus? No, I have a relationship with Jesus. Oh, really? Well, what's your relationship based on? Well, Jesus did this. So you have a relationship with this act? No, I have a relationship with Jesus. Well, how does that work out? Uh, you know, and, and then most of what I've heard isn't too compelling. You know, and it should be. It should be. And... Yeah, I think if people are orienting themselves towards God on the basis of an act, that they're still in some type of relationship that I think the Bible um, really uh, takes a dim view of. We're we're not to be um, 
engaged with God on the basis of duty. We're not to be engaged with God on the basis of, of you know, it's the right thing to do. And uh, our ability to, uh, the, you know, the engine that, that, that drives everything is not the will. It's not the, I must do this. You know, and uh, as, as many authors have said, the notion of gratitude easily, easily it gets mixed up with guilt. And, uh, you know, as you just said, you, you do the most you can and the best you can. But I, I just don't think, on one level, I don't think you do. On one level, like some days, some days, uh, I do what I, I, I do, I do everything I can to, to just keep going. And maybe there aren't many days like that. But there are some days like that. And I don't think those are uh, opportunities for me to uh, feel badly about myself or to feel like God's thinking that I'm a jackass or a loser. Um, but I think that if you're oriented towards, you know, oh, I've got to you know, express my gratitude and all these other things, like, that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. God is not somebody who's come and done something, who's parachuted in, done something to change the world, and then, you know, got airlifted back out again. That's not the point. You know, and I I don't think it's about, on the, one, on the other hand, you know, what have you done for me today? If you haven't done something for me today that's really tangible, that's really kind of groundbreaking and earth-shaking, then, uh, you know... Then maybe you're just a follower. Yeah, well, well, if 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 that's your perspective, you're 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 thinking like the whole thing's getting old, and I don't think it's like that, right? I think faith is involved, but and and we look back, you know, we we understand the present in light of the past, but I'm totally skeptical of this this entire perspective. You know, I think that if something's happened to you, and you've you've you're in a relationship with somebody. It's it's just like the same thing. Like I I like wine, and I would I would tell somebody about a wine I like because I've tried it, not because I I read good write ups about it or people say that it's you know this wine is this wine producer has has uh, changed the industry and has made things much more uh, approachable for lots of people to enjoy wine. Where before it was this sort of uh, uh, very mysterious thing that people didn't really understand and. People would use uh, funny language about and make other people feel stupid because they didn't taste the same things that they that, that these these particular people did. And they've they've opened things up, and it's just so much more accessible and great. But you know what? I like your wine on the basis of whether I like your wine. You may have done all that stuff, but if I don't like your wine, good for you. You've done all that stuff, but I don't like your wine. <laughs> you know, and those two things are related, but they're also distinct. And I just, um, you know, and why do you believe the stories? Why do you believe that Jesus did all these things? Who's to say? Why did Jesus Jesus do them in the first place? And this is where the whole circle comes back. And really, I think it's like the um, the saloon door or the door on the hinge that 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 smacks you in the back of the head when you're walking out because Jesus did all these things out of love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. What does that mean, and how do you experience that? Well, I experience that as Jesus dying on the cross. No, no, you don't. No, you don't. You weren't. You, you weren't there. What, what, what does that mean? You experienced him as Jesus dying on the cross. How, how are you experiencing Jesus' love as him dying on the cross? It was done out of his love. Yes. How do you experience that as Jesus' love? How would you answer that question? I don't. You can't. No way. That's an event that took place. 
It is an act of love, yes. It is an act of obedience, yes. It is both of those things. It is groundbreaking, yes. But it's not the wine that I drink. It's the wine producer who's changed the industry and who's changing the world. But it's not the wine that I drink. Made by the same people, but it's not the stuff. It's not the experience. You know, and and people say, you know, you might get people who would be a little bit more candid about their religious experiences and say things like, I was at church, and this person was speaking, and all of a sudden all these things that I had done that were wrong that came up to my, and I, I just kind of lined up in front of me, and I saw them, and I, I realized that they were insurmountable and that they've been causing uh, no end of problems in my major relationships that I've been trying to make work. It's been fruitless and impossible for me to get anywhere. And this person said to me, if I accept Jesus, that there is a new way and a new beginning and blah, 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 blah. And what I would say is, if you accept something on that basis, then you accept it on that basis. I, I don't necessarily think that's either the best way or, the, or some sort of really negative way. But, but part of that is what comes to fruition after that. Somebody might then say to you six months later, and you know, I've been praying and I've been meeting with this group and I've been looking at some of the things that have been going on in my life and it's been opening up my understandings about some of the issues that I have and that I've been thwarting these relationships and I thank God. You know, but all of that works out as something happening in the here and now, in my life, in somebody's life. I, I, I don't think you love God for the... For, for love is not something that happens in the past to somebody else in another place and another time. Love is something that happens to me and it happens to me in my present. It doesn't happen to me in every moment of my present. But I can look back in my past and see moments that were and say to myself, wow, I have the best explanation I can come up with is God was there. So when this conversion, kind of this conversion experience you were describing, which sounds familiar to me, are you, are you affirming that person's experience? Or are you questioning it? Are you, I'm not quite sure where you're going with that. I would say that if, if I saw something truthful about myself at a certain moment, so let me, that's not my, that, that isn't my story. That's a fictitious story. Right. That's but if I heard. it were me, what I would say is, yes, I've seen something truthful about myself. These relationships are constantly breaking down. I'm seeing a lot of them break down. And I'm getting now to the point at this particular moment, during this particular sermon, presentation of the gospel, whatever, where I'm saying to myself, I think I see a problem here. And I think probably maybe the problem lies with me. And, you know, if I look at it from that perspective... I do not have any resources to get over this. Maybe I see the same type of behavior in my father or in my brother, or my, and I get a little worried. And, and I think if somebody goes to accept God on the basis of a claim that's put out that said, you know, this is the reality of our world. You know, our relationships are fractured. We are broken as individuals. We are in a position where we are not able to overcome these things. Jesus loves us. He cares for us. He wants us to be whole. And it does not mean that everything's going to work out, but Jesus wants to bring healing in, a, in these areas. And this is the type of person Jesus is. And this, this is what Jesus has done to bring healing, generally, globally. And you. So the cross, global, you, your particular situation. Jesus wants to, in a certain sense, reenact the... immensity of the cross in terms of 
the, the, the renewal and healing that we experience as individuals. So if somebody accepted Jesus on that basis, I would say, yeah, great. Like literally, I think that's great. But there are two parts. One is, hey, you see something and this something is wrong with you. And the other part is Jesus is here and wants to do something. And a lot of people on the second hand, on the second part, just say, oh, well, you know, what has Jesus done to help you out with that? Oh, well, you know, I go to church and I sing hymns and, you know, I'm sure that they're not quite as flippant as I'm being here, but I, I don't know that they're giving me a ton more information than that. I would say that that's a problem. You know, it's not a contract. I haven't come to God and said, hey, God, here's what I'm putting on the table. Here's what you're putting on the table. The time limit is two years. After two years, if these issues aren't dealt with, if you haven't made good on your side of it, I'm backing out. Well, <laughs> I'm not being mercenary like that. But on the other hand, I'm not saying, oh, yeah, you know, once you're, once you're in the door, it doesn't really matter what God does. Yeah, sure it does. It big time matters. And for me, I didn't go in the door. I would, I, you know, I backed out, I left Christianity, and I, there's no way I was going back in that door. And then God showed up. God showed up and said, hey, I'm here. And I said, you got my attention. How did he do that? <laughs> we don't have enough time for okay. that. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. So in the interest yeah. of time, any other thoughts on... We'll have to pick that up maybe another time if you were willing yeah. to go into details. Any other thoughts on Chapter 4 before we close things up? Yes. Page 63. The throne of their hearts. Following Jesus means following him alone. Fans don't want to put Jesus on the throne of their hearts. There is no bloody throne on your heart. That is absolute crap. The idea that I direct my heart that there is some sort of a throne there, and I'm, well, what's that then? What, really? What, 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 what does the throne represent? If you're directing your heart, if something's on the throne of your heart, and, and I, I read through some of, uh, another book, which I'd love to talk about a little bit more, and which I don't think very much of at first or second glance, which is the love dare. Um, but that's got some similar notions. We direct our hearts. Well, yeah, no, I think there's some conflict that takes place there. I think, I think, you know, I have certain feelings, certain emotions, certain responses, and then I look at those, and I apply my reason to those, I apply my past experience to that, I apply my imagination to those things. Um, I, I exercise my will and say, you know, I, I may feel this way, but I'm going to act not that way, because I don't think it's the right way to go. But this idea here... This throne notion? What is it? I Well, to me, it's just another way of saying everything he's already said in the first 60 pages. I mean, following Jesus means following him alone. Fans don't want to put Jesus on the throne of their hearts. Instead, they keep a couch on their hearts, and at most, they give Jesus a cushion. See, it's all these different, it's all these varying degrees, and of course, you know, the throne is the best one, I guess. He's asked to share the space, and Jesus makes it clear to this crowd, he's not interested in sharing your heart. The punchline, of course, again, is he wants absolutely everything, and that's all he'll settle for. Yeah, you see, I... I Which shows, I, I, if you go to the next page, how much he loves us. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's some advanced psychology I'm missing that, that that just doesn't click with me, but... You see, the throne thing for me, what, what, where do you have... Who sits on the throne? A sovereign. A king or a queen sits on a throne, right? An emperor, but a sovereign. 
And we're, we're mixing these two things up again. We've got this whole idea of God as sovereign versus God as father. They're not the same things. You can't just interchange them. But isn't that the, isn't that the, I don't mean this sarcastically, but isn't that kind of the magic of God that like he is both? I mean, that's how I've heard it presented. Yeah, but you can't just, by mixing them up, you're, you're actually destroying one of them. This is, this is destroying. I think part of my reaction to this book is it's destroying and under, undercutting the notion of God as father and the reality that I relate to God, the father, as a child. And, and the, the core of a child-parent relationship is not obedience. The, the relationship between a servant and a sovereign is a relationship of obedience. I am a, I am a, a servant to God as sovereign, and my due... The due of a servant to a sovereign is obedience. What is the due of a child to a parent? If your child does everything you want them to do, everything you ask them to do, is that satisfying? Is that enough? It's not. Subsequent chapter or section that's all about being a slave. Signing up for slavery on page 152. Signing up... Signing up for daughtership and sonship. You see, the, the, I, I would just, uh, yeah, I think that one just really says to me that we are totally mixed up. I don't think the heart has a throne. The heart has a garden. And that garden keeps getting bigger the more people you love. And when I had one child, before I had my first child, I could not imagine what that would mean. And somehow, my heart got bigger. You know, I didn't have less love for... My spouse, I had more love. And then I, after one child, I thought, well, how's this going to be? I'm going to have to split the love, the, 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 the child love between two children. Uh-uh. It just gets bigger. And I think what God does is God just explodes that. Which is why, you know, it totally screws up his notion on page, top of page 65. You're so committed that by comparison you hate everybody else. Like, what I'm responding to I think it has crystallized here for me. It's gone from page 21, where it started, and it's been on a trajectory, and it's crystallized here, is that I don't think this guy understands love. You know, kick me in the teeth, if you like. He certainly doesn't talk about it very much. And I think that what he does say doesn't jive. It's like, man, this wouldn't work with your family. And granted, God's love is distinct from human love, but it's also related to human love, or else we couldn't use the same word we wouldn't understand it, right? It would be something totally different. And this, for me, I, I guess, is where a lot of my frustration and probably anger has come out of, which is that I think he doesn't understand love, and if you don't have that understanding, that's absolutely cr- critical for Christianity. And I certainly backed away. I, I, I left Christianity when the, the tough things, uh, you know, the experiences of evil and pain and hurt and suffering were overwhelming, and I saw that Christianity had no resources. And what what he's doing by doing this is he is stripping the number one resource. He is undercutting it. He is turning things back around to this page twenty one reward or punishment. And we've got this idea, even at the at the core of what it is to love in the heart, this idea of a throne. And it's it's just this return to sovereignty, this return to. Uh, living in, as a servant, living oriented towards God is, uh, through duty and using the will. And we've lost the thing about love. We've lost the thing about, you know, what's written upon the heart. 
the laws written upon the heart. Right? Which is not about a throne. It's about my understanding and my response to God is a response that comes out of love, not out of the will. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on iTunes or at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash nine. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thanks to Kevin for his generosity. Support him at his website by going to incompetech.com. Tune in next week for a new episode.